I'm Kyle Rode, and this is the Rebel HR Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Rebel HR is a podcast for HR professionals who are ready to make some disruption in the world of work. Follow us online on Facebook at Rebel HR Podcast, rebelhumanresources.com, or follow me on Twitter at Rebel HR Guy. Today's podcast is a recording of a keynote speech that I did at the Iowa Vocational Rehabilitation Conference in the summer of 2020. We covered the topics of inclusion as an imperative and inclusion in the world of COVID. Thanks for joining us. I wanted to talk a little bit about inclusion. And when I was when I was asked to do this keynote, I was actually, it was before COVID. Now, obviously, times have changed pretty drastically. So what I w- was initially planning to do was just kind of tell my story of inclusion. But now, with all the disruption in the, in the marketplace, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about inclusion in the context of COVID-19 and talk about that from the perspective of a business and a human resources um, professional. It's, it's been a very tumultuous time for, for HR. So if you know an HR person, give them a hug today because they're probably under a lot of stress. <laughs> Work has changed and work will continue to change and that is the universal truth change is the only constant and unfortunately in my opinion and i love hr and i love hr people hr can get stuck in the mud there is an opportunity for us in human resources to make very positive change to impact a number of different people and to to move uh, the ball forward I also call myself a little bit of an accidental inclusionist. Now, so my story, I am a, I'm a lifelong Iowan. I was born in Clorinda, Iowa. And if anybody from Southwest Iowa is on this, uh, you know, represent, go Clorinda Cardinals. When I, when I talk to my colleagues in New York and I tell them that, well, when I was born, the hospital wing was full, so they had to drive me to Shenandoah so that I could get get delivered in Shenandoah, and then they took me back to Clorinda for <laughs> postpartum. People look at me like, where Where are you from? <laughs> so obviously, Clorinda is a small town, about 5,000 people when I was living there. Uh, and then I moved to the big city. I moved to Burlington. And going from Clorinda, Iowa to Burlington, Iowa, for me, was absolute culture shock. And I was exposed to, to people of, of very diverse backgrounds compared to what I w- had previously been introduced to. And then I went to the uh, the great institution, the University of Iowa, and it was like going to a different planet. I really fell into inclusion work, honestly, kind of accidentally, because in my role in human resources, I got to know community. And in my current community in Waterloo, I got exposed to some of the challenges that many people were facing and, and uh, felt that human resources and businesses in general had an obligation to improve their community by doing some common sense inclusion practices. So let's talk a little bit, we'll, we'll go pre-COVID here, um, which seems like about five years ago at this point, but some of the workforce challenges that we were hearing in HR, these are some direct quotes, you know, can't find enough good people, 
where are the good employees, recruiting isn't working, nobody wants to stay at the same employer, or some derivative of these types of comments were, were being said by what I consider to be my internal customers, my hiring managers, and my my CEO and my and our leadership team, and that was the the problem statement that that we were facing. I like to look at statistics because that really informs the the actions. And in the world of of business, if you don't have a business case or you don't have a business plan or it doesn't tie to some sort of quantifiable business result, you don't get approval and and you don't get a budget. Let's take a look at some of the pre-COVID numbers. So if you look back in 2019, unemployment rates were near record lows. Iowa was uh, between first, second, or third for unemployment rate between Hawaii and New Hampshire, just depended on the month, a little bit of seasonality there. So it, it was tough to find people. It's certainly a challenge to find the right fit for a job. My current company is an equipment manufacturer. We really struggle to find candidates that had the appropriate skill set and candidates that didn't mind rolling their sleeves up and doing some work that might not be the most glamorous because part of our job might require tearing down a bearing and getting covered in grease you know it's 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 not uh, it's not something that you would post on Instagram <laughs> but the thing about an unemployment rate is it really doesn't tell the whole story and even currently, the current unemployment rate does not tell the whole story. And this is something that uh, I get really frustrated when we focus on, when we just talk about unemployment rate. Because unemployment rate is really, it's one statistic that is important to give us a snapshot in time, but it doesn't include people who have stopped searching for a job or just haven't met the qualifying criteria to be considered unemployed. I like to instead focus on the participation rate. If you look at the participation rate prior to COVID, Iowa was pretty high compared to the United States average. We are one of the states with the largest percentage where both parents in the household work, which causes other challenges as it relates to childcare and some of, some of those issues. Uh, but we did have a relatively high labor force participation rate, and that's people over the age of 16, 69.2% versus 62.9 in this statistic. But then you need to go even a little bit deeper, because if you were to just look at that number, you would be satisfied to say, well, everybody that wants to be working is working. We've got a higher than average participation rate. You know, I, I think that those unemployment levels are correct. However, when you start to peel back the layers of the onion and you look at the unemployment rate by demographic. My county is Blackhawk County, so this is this is that look from 2013 to 2017. It tells a pretty shocking story. So the first time that I saw this statistic uh, was probably about, it would have been about four or five years ago, and I was absolutely blown away. I had no idea that there was this level of difference between somebody who happened to be white versus somebody who was in a minoritized population, somebody that had a disability, somebody that had less than a high school diploma, poverty. For me, I thought of two things. The first thing that came into my mind was, well, this is, this is bad. This is a travesty. This, is, this tells me that something is wrong and that we need to help our community. That was the first thing. 
But the second thing that came into my mind as any good HR or talent acquisition specialist would jump to is, boy, that's a lot of available talent. So how do I go get that into the role that I need to fill and let them be successful? And ultimately, that's going to set the business up for success, right? And so this is where I talk about I was an accidental inclusionist because I was relatively ignorant to the fact that these numbers were the way they were until somebody showed me this statistic. After I was made aware, it became readily apparent that the strategy needed to shift. And going back to disrupt HR, we needed to disrupt the way that we were doing things because they were causing this outcome. And we were contributing to that as business leaders and as HR professionals. Numbers don't lie, and that's, that's really where some of the strategies that we're going to talk through today uh, came from. So this is pre-COVID. A lot of the focus was on talent pool expansion. Uh, how do I go into that, deep dive the numbers, find the demographics and the groups that might have a challenge uh, getting employed uh, or need support, or maybe I've got a policy or a protocol in place that is unintentionally uh, exclusive. Uh, and so that, that was a lot of the work there. However, the landscape has changed. Uh, this is a little bit of a small slide, but you get the idea. So the light blue line is the United States uh, unemployment rate, which went up above 14% back in um, April. Uh, Iowa went up to above 10%, which is extremely drastic for Iowa. Uh, and then as of June, it's gone down a little bit where the U.S. unemployment rate is 11%, uh, but the state of Iowa was at 8% at that point. So the good news is that we have seen that start to, um, start to drop. As I mentioned earlier, the unemployment rate, again, still isn't a great metric to understand the true state of where we're at as it relates to our available workforce. If you go into the participation rate post-COVID, you can see that we went from almost 70%. We were above 70 at the, uh, right before uh, COVID hit down to 66%, and the U.S. participation rate plummeted down to 61%. So for the state of Iowa, uh, that's, that's extremely drastic. So we had a number of people just completely out of the, uh, completely out of the economy that would be um, otherwise uh, looking looking to work. And so the, the, the statistics are relatively shocking and, and, and can be a little bit scary. Um, so I, I want to focus on uh, kind of what the new normal looks like and, and what businesses are looking at. Um, so some of the, some of those, those questions that I mentioned earlier, the case for, um, you know, talent acquisition and, and recruiting and some of the challenges and problems that my my internal business customers were facing have really changed into these types of statements. So how do I how do I keep my employees safe? And we've really we have gone from the point of just trying to keep somebody somebody hired and keep them productive to how do I make sure they can come to work and not feel like we are putting them in danger? Or what steps do I have to take to make sure that I can still see my coworkers and ensure that, that we can collaborate effectively. 
in my business, we are a manufacturer, of course. Fortunately for our business outlook, we are in the segment of agricultural uh, manufacturing equipment. So we are considered considered an essential employer, considered critical infrastructure. So we kept working through the COVID pandemic, but we did send our office employees home. In, in my world, in HR, I wasn't worried about trying to hire people because we froze all hiring. I was worried about making sure that people didn't get sick, didn't get exposed, uh, didn't have deep-seated fears or potential mental health concerns uh, related to being asked to work. And then I had an entire cohort of employees who were asked to work from home, many of them uh, in a very isolated fashion. And so, so when you're dealing with those types of challenges and and just absolutely scary situations everything else goes away besides safety <laughs> so that that has become the most important paramount workforce challenge for hr and for for every business on the secondary level there's a number of businesses that are staring at bankruptcy and wondering how they can keep the doors open uh, unfortunately there's been a number of businesses that have had to do layoffs that would not have wanted to do layoffs, but they just they have to cut payroll costs, otherwise they won't be able to to keep operating. So that shifts into how do I keep my team employed? How do I keep people comfortable? And how do I make sure I make enough money to keep the lights on? Uh, so that has really prompted a conversation about how do we continue to stabilize? How do we grow? But then also how do I how do I go in and cut costs? and not do it by cutting headcount. So there's been a really heavy interest in continuous improvement activities. How do I save money? How do I save time? And then in the world of HR, unfortunately, you could go down the list. There's been a number of, of challenges uh, in our society as it relates to racial inequities and uh, some of these really sad situations where innocent people have lost their lives or a, a group who's been minoritized or marginalized is stepping up and saying, hey, this isn't right. I've been operating this way. I'm not comfortable operating this way anymore. This change needs to happen. So our organizations are facing that. Um, and the question is now, how do I manage social unrest? And all of these things have just completely shifted the conversation. So I probably sound like doom and gloom right now, but I actually want to talk a little bit about the silver lining. I think we are at a we are at an opportunity to shift the way that we work, the way that we view work, and the way that we view our team. So if I go down and I look at I look at safety and all of the fears and concerns as it relates to safety. What this crisis has forced us to do is it's forced us to get to understand our employees on a much deeper level. So how do I keep my employees safe is, is the question that's up there. The answer is you have to understand where they're coming from, what their concerns are, and you have to understand how you can help them. And in my mind, that's good business practice. So it's forced us to get to know our team. It's forced my managers to have more empathy for what our employees are facing. It's forced me to take a look at our, our current policies and procedures and, and and understand, okay, are we really as safe as we thought we were before COVID? 
And this has prompted a full-on restructuring of our safety team to ensure that we have much more 360 feedback from our employees. Uh, we've structured new policies and procedures to make sure that people are more comfortable coming to work. We've done more pulse surveys to understand what good looks like in their eyes. And that has helped our business become a much more connected organization. A lot of businesses were forced to look at debt, and a lot of businesses were taking a lot of debt. And unfortunately, that is prompting some bankruptcy for some that got over leverage. But it's forcing businesses to take a look at, at their balance sheets and make sure that those are healthy. It's forced us to start doing video collaboration. Previous to COVID, we didn't do any sort of video chat, video interview. We had the IT capability, but we just didn't use it. Now we always use it. Monday morning, I was on a call with my leadership team, and I had somebody from Singapore, the Netherlands, Michigan, Minneapolis, Florida. I had everybody on the same call. It was just the same as if we were sitting in a boardroom having a meeting about the current state of the business. Those types of interactions have actually helped my organization feel much more connected and actually make it feel more like a small collection of, of leaders. It's been pretty great. As we look at inclusion, in my mind, it has now become an imperative. If you go out and you look at the recent postings for diversity and inclusion officer, inclusion consultant, you know, those roles are everywhere now. I probably see a new one every day on LinkedIn. And it's because organizations have realized that this is not just a nice to do as a business. This is something that our employees are asking us to do. Something that if we don't do, we're going to be left behind. The point here is that CEOs and senior leaders are being forced to confront the reality that equity, equality, diversity, inclusion, engagement, it's all driven by culture. It's all driven by systems. And the systems that are in place in many of our organizations are unintentionally exclusive or not inclusive. And so what this has done in my mind, in my world, is it's not just an HR initiative anymore. Yes, there's been a lot of job postings for diversity and inclusion roles, but I will tell you that my CEO came to me in the days after the the George Floyd incident and said, how do we get better? You know, this is something that I that I think we need to we need to do better at. And then he went into a town hall with every single employee in my company and said, we need to get better and we're going to get better. Now we have a focused project on a global level to continue to get better. And so I, this is causing organizations to wake up. I think that this is an absolutely um, huge opportunity for us to get better and an opportunity for all of you in your roles to ensure that uh, disability is one of those focuses for an inclusion initiative. Uh, and so I, I, the focus is really shifting. And I think a lot of people understand that quotas are a outcome. They shouldn't be the strategy. So as I look at, as I look at diversity and inclusion and equity, for me, I look at diversity as a noun. Diversity is a, it's a descriptor. It's the result of inclusion and equity. So if you have an inclusive culture, if you are taking action, I view inclusion as the verb. It's the action that we can take 
it's one of the things that we can do. And then ultimately, equity is really where we should focus our effort. Equality sounds good. It sounds like the thing that we should be doing, but not everybody is starting from the same box to stand on in this picture. Uh, so equity is really allowing people the opportunity to start from the same position. As I look at human resources, we have always been focused on equality because that's what the regulatory requirements were. You know, as I look at the EEOC and ADA, it's really largely driven by making sure people have equal opportunity, but it really misses the entire point of equity. And that is, that's one of the challenges. I want to talk a little bit about the qualitative research here. There are differing opinions on the, quote, business case for inclusion. And there's a lot of people that absolutely hate it, which is interesting to me. My, my perspective is you have to have a business case to do anything in the world of business. Uh, right, wrong, or indifferent, that's just how businesses are wired. So we have to, if we're going to go invest time, energy, uh, sweat, equity into an initiative, we have to be able to have some sort of a business case why we're going to do it. There are some companies who are just next level thinkers and naturally inclusive and they, they have a, a, a heart for giving back to the community and being inclusive and they're absolutely fantastic. But unfortunately, especially in the for-profit sector, organizations that have to make money, they still have to have this case. And so I, I focus a lot on this business case because this is the language that I have to talk to my organization in as it relates to my projects and initiatives. And what you'll find is, especially in the world of human resources, there's a lot of HR professionals that believe all this is critical, probably one of the most important initiatives. Sometimes where the ball gets dropped in an organization is an HR professional can't articulate this to a CFO or a CEO. Um, and so the goal here is to be able to articulate what that business case is so that somebody can go back into an organization or in this case, you guys can go into a business and uh, or talk to a candidate that you're supporting and help them understand what this business case is and why this is important for an organization to do it. And as I think about the candidate experience, somebody with a disability who's, who's looking for an opportunity, this business case tells them that this is worth it, that they are worth it, that they need to keep trying and working because they will be helpful with the organizations that they are in. Uh, so if you look at uh, gender diversity, the McKinsey Research Group uh, showed that they're 15% more likely to outperform peers. Ethnically diverse companies are 35% more likely to do the same. Uh, Catalyst Research shows, shows companies with more women on the board statistically outperform their peers over a long period of time. Deloitte Australia uh, showed an 80% outperformance uh, of inclusive teams. You can keep going. If you Google this, you're going you're, you're gonna to find all the statistics you want. <laughs> uh, out of 450 companies over a two-year period, getting back into the CFO's ear here, 2.3 times higher cash flow, 13 times higher mean cash flow, 1.8 times more likely to be change ready, 1.7 times more likely to be innovation leaders. All those things for me say growth. 
3.8 times more likely to be able to coach people for improved performance, 2.9 times more likely to identify and build leaders. So the, the proof is there. And then the next big thing that we haven't even touched on this type of diversity yet is generational diversity. So I will admit it, I am a millennial. And I, I know that automatically makes people, people uh, recoil and uh, get nervous. Uh, we're here, and you know when, when people talk to me or complain to me about millennials, my, my typical response is that, uh, yeah, you, you mean all those people that are in their mid-30s with three kids and a mortgage? Because that's what most millennials are going through right now in Iowa, <laughs> uh, myself included. We are uh, the largest uh, generation uh, in the world of work today, and uh, we are going to be the leaders of tomorrow and continue to push for, for change. So hold on to your seats. We're coming. 43% of millennials identify as non-white. Cognitive diversity for millennials is just as important as traditional diversity. And I think this is a critical, uh, critical focus area because, again, if we just, if we define diversity in, in the box of, you know, race, gender, age, you are missing an entire picture of what diversity is. And for me, cognitive diversity is probably the most critical piece of diversity because it really allows for change and innovation. And I've seen that play out time and time again. Millennials are, uh, you know, um, maybe bleeding hearts. They'd take a pay cut to work for a socially responsible company. Uh, we consider social and environmental commitments before accepting a job. They don't want employers to just have these flowery statements on their website. They want employers to put their actions where their statements are. And so, you know, it's not enough to say, yeah, we believe that we, we should, uh, you know, employ people of all abilities at our company. That person, if you hear that, they're going to want to be able to go out into the office or go into the manufacturing floor or the retail floor, and they want to see somebody working with with a disability. They want to be able to, to be shown that you mean what you say. And over half of people won't even take a job if they feel like you're being inauthentic. Uh, so I tell this to HR people all around the, the world, if, if you don't have a strong social community, environmental commitment as an organization, you are not going to get the best talent. You are not going to be able to hire as many people. You're going to struggle. You're going to have issues. Uh, and eventually, I think if, if you do that long enough, your organization won't survive. Gen Z, even even further down the uh, generational path, are almost 50% identify as non-white, 49%. 72% believe racial equality is the most important issue today. 36% say equality is the most important cause they want their employer to support. So from my perspective, demographic information is always really interesting to me, just because I think it's fascinating how people tick. But if somebody tells me that they that one third of a group wants an employer to support equality as a cause, that's a game changer for me. That means that one third of the candidates coming out of college today want me to have some sort of a stance on equality to help it be better. <laughs> and so again, that that tells me that the time for action is now. So what can an employer do? My pitch is it's simple. Just go help your community.
you know, we can look at all these statistics, we can talk about these facts, but at the end of the day, the way that businesses get great talent, have a great employer brand, win in the marketplace, innovate, grow, cut costs, is by being a community partner. And the challenge uh, that, that many people in the community face is a barrier to employment, and they continue to exist. One of the biggest risks that I see with the high unemployment rate, and I'm sure many of you have seen this as, as the recessions have, have come and gone over the years, is when unemployment goes high, it becomes a lot easier to hire, and it becomes really easy as an HR person to get really lazy and to just take the person that matches the skills that you want and looks pretty good and you know what I got I've got one resume this is good enough and I've got 50 other resumes here I'm just gonna take this one because it looks good enough but that's the reality uh, I had a I posted a position in Minneapolis I had over 400 applicants the stack of resumes is increasing and that means that people with barriers are going to struggle more and more if businesses don't have an intentional inclusive view of how they bring people into an organization and ultimately how they retain employees. So I want to talk through a, a couple what I call case studies. I, I find that I learn a lot more from stories. So I want to talk a little bit about transportation needs. It's one of the big challenges that we face in my communities, we don't have a bus route to a location. I'm assuming that many of you around Iowa have a similar situation. Many of our associates were relying on rides from families and friends. Many of them were not able to afford a ride until after a first paycheck. Either they didn't have a car, uh, didn't, couldn't afford to put gas in the car. And guess what? You don't get a paycheck for a few weeks. So we, we did a, an initiative at our company to partner with a local taxi company uh, in the area. Essentially what we did is we, we went to this small business and we said, Barb, you've got this new taxi company. Uh, we've got employees that can't get to work. Can we figure out a deal? Let's let's figure something out. So we struck a deal to come up with a uh, almost like a bus pass situation where they they gave out these these tickets. We would give these tickets to individuals that we had recently hired uh, if they asked for it or said they needed any sort of assistance with transportation, and then they would take those and they would get they would contact the taxi company and the taxi would give them a a ride. We gave them enough to last until they got their first paycheck, which for our organization was two weeks. And then what we did in those two weeks was uh, we also worked to try to find carpool solutions for them, um, get them connected with people within their their departments that had same start times. And that was a that was a great success. We we didn't have a ton of people that leveraged it, but it, the the unintended consequence was we started doing that, and then word got out that we were helping people. Uh, which was a win-win. We've been advocating to expand bus options. I'm thrilled to announce that our local bus route is actually coming out to the industrial park that we work in now. Uh, it only took five years, but we are there. <laughs> and they're they're working to, uh, to get that up and running. Of course, COVID-19 has put a little bit of a pause on that, but uh, we got that expanded. And then the other thing is shift start times. So in manufacturing, we start at 6 a.m., 5 a.m., 5.30 trying to get somebody to get up and get their buddy to give them a ride to work at five in the morning, good luck, right? So we would have people who maybe that worked for a week, but then they'd lose a ride. So we modified some shift start times. And one of those, one of those situations was somebody who relied on our local paratransit that had a disability and needed that paratransit to get to work. 
the job that they were doing didn't require them to be there at the same time that everybody else started. So we just moved the shift back. A lot of the fear was, well, if we modify the shift for one person, then we have to modify it for everybody. And ultimately, as we were arguing this as a leadership team, the answer was, yeah, we would. But would that really be a bad thing if we had somebody else that required an accommodation or just needed a shift change so that they could get to work? And then what that prompted was, well, yeah, maybe we should just ask people what time they want to start work. And what we found is we actually had sections of our organization that started super early but preferred to start later. So we were able, we modified some of our entire departmental shift times in order to align with what our employees liked. And ultimately, it really didn't impact the business in any way, shape, or form. It was just something that that start time had been in place for the last 40 years. We just needed to change it. <laughs> One of the big barriers is criminal backgrounds. Nearly 700,000 men and women are released from prison per year in the U.S. We are one of the highest incarceration rate countries in the first world. And many companies screen out criminal backgrounds immediately. And as I said, now that unemployment is 8%, people are going to do that. It's going to happen. One of the things that happened here in Waterloo, they actually passed an ordinance to ban the box, which is removing the criminal conviction question on an application. We did that voluntarily many years ago. We haven't had any issues. In fact, we found some of our best talent was somebody that had a previous uh, criminal conviction. And what we found is that we gave them an opportunity. We believed in them and we gave them a shot. And because we did that, we showed them that we cared and they were loyal. And if you talk to businesses and employers, most of them will tell you that education and some of the tasks that somebody does can be trained for the most part, but the motivation, the diligence, the attention to detail, the getting to work on time, that's the stuff that really matters when we're, when we're recruiting. So. One of the big barriers in Waterloo, as well as some other pockets in, around Iowa, is, is language. One of the largest areas of population growth in our state is from the immigrant group. We have a large Burmese population in Waterloo, as well as many other immigrant populations that came here primarily because of the meatpacking industry. What was happening is they would be hired uh, at, a, at a local uh, meatpacker, and then they would bring their family. So then they have their their spouse, their children who would come with them wouldn't necessarily work at that meatpacking facility, but did not come here with, with uh, English skills, but were really motivated and ready to work and looking for an opportunity. So we put in a workforce uh, integration plan. We hired Poe, you can see the picture of Poe, certified trainer and translator. He referred over 20 people <laughs> the day after we hired him. And uh, and helped us build our, our training plan. And he just he had a passion for his for his community. He was going uh, to Hawkeye Community College as an auto tech, and now he's a full time uh, trainer and translator. Just an absolutely wonderful uh, wonderful story there. We saw great business results, zero percent turnover over a six month period. That department previously had a hundred percent turnover per year, so we were literally replacing everybody in that department every year. Unplanned absenteeism rate got cut in half, department overtime reduced. It was a huge, huge win. And quite frankly, it was pretty easy. Poe did a lot of the work because he had a passion for it. 
This is our disability case study. And the barrier was simply that we had individuals in our community that were absolutely motivated to work, had talents and capabilities to do jobs that we had, but they needed some accommodations. We hired these two individuals through the Inclusion Connection, which is a local community partner, Evoke Rehab, and Project Search. So it's kind of like the trifecta, I call them. Uh, and they, they honestly, they handheld us through this process. They made this very, very easy for an organization to do. Uh, so we took a look at, okay, what, what jobs do we have on the line that are pulling people away from the primary job? The job that you see Samir doing here is he's labeling color chip. We had to label them. We had to sort them. We had to send them uh, out to dealers so that people could review our product offering. And that was something that somebody was doing as a component of their job, but the rest of their job required them to be extremely attentive they were checking quality of our product. They were making sure that the line was running smoothly. They were coaching and supporting people that needed help. They were putting hardware into the product that was going to get shipped to the customer. And then on this, in all of the complexity of their job, they were supposed to go and do this and label this stuff real quick. <laughs> so you can imagine that we were having quality issues. It was slowing down the line. It was, it was an issue. So we took this job. And we put this into a really safe place. We put this into a warehouse. We, we modified the workspace so that uh, Samir uh, could sit. That was one of the accommodations that uh, was requested. That jig that he's using there, that little piece of wood, is helping him sort. That was something that Inclusion Connection and Voc Rehab helped to figure out to help him do his job better. And they really helped do the job coaching and training and support. We utilized the tax credit, of course. We saw no attendance issues. In fact, whenever Samir missed, uh, he would make sure he called our attendance line, he called his supervisor, and then he'd make sure to call me just to make sure that I, that I knew that he wasn't going to be there and to apologize. So absolutely thoughtful guy and no attendance issues on, from him. Very, very diligent, took their job very, very seriously. We had almost no quality issues. We saw our assembly line efficiency increase because we took this job off of somebody else's shoulders put it into a, an area that this job got done better, that job got done better. It was a win-win. But I think the thing for me that's more important than all of those results is the, the human impact here and the human experience. So this department, before we hired Samir and Dalton, was kind of a mess, I'll be honest. We had a lot of employees who were, you know, we kind of argue with each other. I was having a lot of employee relations concerns. There was a clear lack of trust on the team. And the manager had tried almost everything to, to work through some of these issues. But what happened when we brought in Samir and Dalton is we brought in individuals that needed some help and needed people to be their higher selves. And what we saw was people became very, very supportive to the point of being protective of Samir and Dalton, and it turned into one of our highest morale departments. And my hypothesis is it's because it became a family. It's because the, the group there took care of Samir and Dalton. They supported them, and because they were helping others, they felt better about the jobs they were doing, and they helped each other. We did this initiative, and one of the biggest fears when we when we made the accommodations and did job carving and 
and modified schedules and modified workplaces is we were afraid we'd have an influx of accommodation requests or we would be worried about what the rest of the employees would think. So I was walking the floor one day and walking through um, one of our departments and I had an employee waving at me and so I was trying to be nice so I waved back and then she made a beeline for me like a fast beeline and I'm thinking uh-oh somebody's somebody's mad somebody wants to talk to HR and um, so I braced myself for for impact and this in, individual had, uh, had had previously been in my office for various reasons um, not all of them positive so I I didn't know what to expect so you know you kind of just brace yourself for for uh, what's coming and uh, she walked up to me and she was crying and extremely emotional and she said I heard you I heard you hired these uh, these guys down in the down in the warehouse and I knew she was talking about Samir and Dalton and I thought in the back of my mind uh-oh here it comes she's gonna complain about being unfair we're gonna have issues and I should have checked myself at that moment because she surprised me and she said my daughter has a disability and I didn't know that our company did this and this gives me hope and I love this company for doing this now I'm trying not to cry and she hugged me and I hugged her back which is not necessarily an HR best practice but I couldn't help it I knew it was the right thing to do and I knew that we had to do more of this and it and it prompted this organization to continue to look at this as an opportunity um, so I'm, I'm pleased to report so I'm not with this organization any longer this has been a few years back but as I, I drive by my old company every single day and I'm pleased to report that yesterday as I drove by the Met paratransit was sitting in the parking lot dropping off another individual uh, to this department to do this work so uh, it has continued, the organization has continued to to leverage uh, this community to help fill their needs. So not only is it good for business, it's it's just the right thing to do. But it is also good for business. So in this in these case studies alone, this is just these these limited case studies, we saw we saved seventeen thousand dollars in overtime costs. We saw a ninety percent decrease in turnover uh, in that department. We saw a seven hundred percent increase in applications. So just by doing the right thing, we were able to prove to the community that we cared about people and then people wanted to work for us. It was very simple, simple math. <laughs> we reduced the time to fill, you know, it, it just worked. But again, it's also the right thing to do. So where do we go from here? So COVID obviously certainly became complex, but it didn't change the fundamental truth of the environment that we're operating in. Inclusion still has to be intentional. And it has to be even more intentional now. With high unemployment rates, with social unrest, we as companies have to be intentional with inclusion. The labor market's made it a little bit more challenging. We have to continue to help those with barriers. My advice would be find advocates to help knock them down. I've become much more involved in my community over the last few years just by a product of, of caring. And getting connected with a with a community group that's helping somebody with barriers get employed and ultimately that helps the company I work for but it also helps the community and it, and it helps me find some volunteer activities that that can support my community and, and I can truly help with I would say for this group find the yes companies find those companies that have 
an interest in this, have an imperative uh, to do this, just get it. When you find a company that gets it, you're going to have a lot more success than trying to convince all the people that already have no in their head. Um, and if you can find those, if you can find that network, that's going to make it a lot easier. I think that remote work, I think that working from home has created an awesome opportunity for anybody that has a barrier or is facing any challenges in their in their lives, uh, whether that's a disability or maybe it's language. You know, remote work for me just opened up my recruiting pool to anybody anywhere and at any time because I can hire anybody in any time zone. So recent storms notwithstanding, as long as you have a, a, a internet bandwidth, you can you can find more jobs now. And this is I think this is just facilitated this to move more quickly now because of COVID. And then the you know the last thing, as long as you can solve a problem, you're creating value for a business partner. So if you if you're going into a business, if you're supporting somebody, as long as you can solve a problem, you are helping them. And if you're helping them, they will be interested to hear what you have to say. All right, that does it for the Rebel HR podcast. Follow us on Facebook at Rebel HR Podcast, Twitter at Rebel HR Guy, or see our website at rebelhumanresources.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rebel HR Podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any of the organizations that we are in. No animals were harmed during the filming of this podcast. Baby.